Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 3 of 7 podcast. This is Chad. We've got another awesome episode for you guys today with uh, Miss Mary Walker. Mary is a wife, a mother, a therapist, and an ultra runner. Awesome combination, guys. She's got two young boys, ages three and five. She's been running for approximately 10 to 12 years and doing ultras for the last six. Mary is a therapist that has been specifically working with our military within the realm of psychological health and sexual assault. She's been doing that for the past 10 years. She's got 15 years sober, and she's completed over 10 100-mile foot races since 2015. That's after having her children And she has also completed two 200-mile races to include the Tahoe 200 and the Moab 240. We talk a little bit about those 200-mile races uh, in this interview. We really dig in with Mary. We talk about how the body, soul, and spirit are interconnected. And um, just she has so much knowledge, not only because of her ultra-running background, but because of her profession being a therapist. And she's got so much to offer. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here she is, Miss Mary Walker. All right, Mary Walker, welcome to the Three of Seven podcast. Very excited to be here. I'm humbled <laughs> that you asked me to be interviewed. Well, we're excited to have you, Mary. Um, the reason that I guess we decided to record this episode is a message that you sent me on Instagram the other day. So Mary and I talk back and forth on Instagram from time to time and she sent me a message. It was after a race that you had just finished. What was that race? The Indiana Trail 100 two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. So it was very recently. And Mary said something that really stood out to me. And I'm going to quote you here, Mary, if you don't mind. Sure. Mary said, I reach a point where I want to quit, but I just don't let myself And at that point, it's where I have a mini breakdown and then I move along. And that was really interesting to me because when I'm running or whatever, doing something hard, you know, when I was in the teams or whatever it may be, my mind is very, very simple. So I simplify things down to basically two options. I'm either going to break my body or... I'm going to cross the finish line or accomplish the mission or achieve victory, whatever you want to call it. So I just, I just get in this kind of zone and that thought or even that desire of like quitting, it never enters my mind, but I think that's just the way my mind ticks. Um, I don't, I, I don't think that, the way my mind works is necessarily the right way. I just think it is the way that it works. And I've got friends like, uh, like Marcus Luttrell. He's a, have you ever read his book, Lone Survivor? I have not. Okay. It's a, it's a great book. Marcus is a pretty well-known former SEAL. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he talks about all the time when he was going through SEAL training, he thought about quitting every single day. And so that, that's what I'm saying where, you know, but but I've never really dug into that with somebody. And that's what I wanted to ask you about to start with, Mary, is I was wondering if you could give us a story of one of those moments where, you know, you you really wanted to quit. You had the thought 
It was in your head, but you were able to manage that. And as you said, uh, not let yourself quit. Have your little uh, breakdown. I want you to that. I, I hope that's a part of the story because I want to hear how it is that, a breakdown. Yeah, I want to hear how that uh, you know incorporates, and uh, and then how you're able to get back out on the race course or or the battlefield of life or whatever it may be and and carry on with your mission. So would you share a story like that with us? Sure, absolutely. I, I probably have plenty to relate because uh, I mean, choosing to do these ultra endurance events, I think just lends to pushing your limits. Right. And then for me, um, you know, and I'll say like, I've listened to you on different podcasts and I guess I love your simplicity because I'm not simple in my mind and I wish I could boil things down to be as simple as you share them to be for you. And I take those as tools because I'm like, that's what I'm going to do this time. But I also know myself really well. And, um, So I'm also a therapist, so that gives a little bit of context for like who I am and maybe how I function a little bit. So I'm pretty in tune with what's going on with me. So, and I think to go into it, um, I will get to a story, but I think that's partly why, even though after every 100 miler or 200, I've been like, I'm done, I'm retiring, I can't put myself through this anymore, like it's exhausting. But then like, I always, I said that last Um, October and here I've done like I'll be doing at least four or five races this year Um, because I want to see I want to do better right like and a lot of it is not physically it's mainly mentally and having that like the right mental mindset to not suffer as much so with that um, this past race a few weeks ago wasn't like a huge discouragement um, or a huge breakdown compared to others, but I'll just go into that because that's fresh. So like I had some goals at the race, it's like home turf. And so I was really um, pushing the limits for myself for the most part. But, um, you know, I've also done this race a couple times before. And, um, you know, I had done pretty decent for the first 50 miles, um, a little bit slower than I wanted. And then of course I had been struggling with not being able to eat um, and get without feeling nauseous. And so I was kind of battling that all day. And then it was nighttime. I had grabbed my pacer and we had made it around to like, um, our, the last loop, which is a 20 mile loop and to the first aid station, which is seven or eight miles in. And, you know, I'm cold. It's just all the, the, the silly stuff that, you know, always wants to get us. I'm cold. And I, I just like, could not eat the right stuff. It's like, what do you want to eat? And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, no. And like, this was a, this was a special race because my husband was there, but with my kids and they're three and five and they haven't really come to a lot of races or when my oldest was really young, he can't remember. Um, and so like, I got to see them at different points throughout the race, which was really great. And it didn't make me want to quit. It made me want to finish. And, you know, at that point I'm like, what do I have to prove? Like, why am I doing this again? Like bad mom, all that, like just that negative stuff that comes in. And I'm like, I'm tired of suffering like this. Um, but then I was just, I just told my pacer, I was like, I just don't want to go back out. Like, I just don't want to. And I think, as so I sat in the chair, right? And I've been listening to you talk about the don't die in the chair and your podcast. And I'm like, don't die in the chair. I paced somebody like a month ago. I was like, don't die in the chair. Um, but I know for me, like, there's only so much I can do to repress 
you know, that negativity and that bad mental space, like I can fake it till I make it for a while. And then sometimes there's a point where it's just like, I have to let it out. Um, I can't let it dominate me. But if I push too hard, and this goes with my whole life too, like if I push too hard to show up and have, you know, the right face and posture to work with people that day, just like, you know, check your shit at the gate, show up to work, you know, with your military mindset, be combat ready or whatever. Um, there's only so much repression that I can do before I break. And for me, I'm not as natural unless I'm able to kind of have my breakdown, get it out, and then I can start trying to move on. And so like at that moment, it was just like I had to um, just tell her like what I really felt, the truth in my head, um, that I didn't want to keep going. I knew I would, but I didn't want to keep going. I'm tired. I'm cold. Like, what do I have to prove? I've already done like two two others this year. Like, um, and so then I just like cried for a second, you know, just really quick. She hugged me. And then a couple people I know were working the aid station too. And I feel like they always have to see me being so weak, but that's okay. Like it's part of my process. And, um, and then it's just like, all I know from doing this all the time is you got to get out of the tent. You got to get out of the chair. Like, you know, as long as you just start moving, you're going to be okay. It's just that same concept. Like, like you say, don't die in the chair, but it's like, leave the aid station. And I try not to let my negativity in like, cause that happens all the time. Like I do feel like quitting or it's like, really, what do I have to prove? But um, for me, I really have to allow that to, I guess, just get out. So it stops infecting me almost like a poison, you know? And when I've listened to you on podcasts, I'm like, oh, I really like that, you know? Cause I've been in races before where I've been alone the whole time. And I'm like this, you know, um, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? So like, don't think it, don't say it, it's not real, right? You know, fake it till you make it. And, um, and that's worked for me at different times until it doesn't. And um, I wish I could be as strong where I wouldn't let that stuff infect me as much. But so I just know for me, like life and a kind of a key thing with therapy is like, what's what you what gets repressed gets expressed one way, shape or form, right? Um, it may not come out in certain ways, but it can come out in um, agitation, aggression, drinking, lots of other stuff if you don't acknowledge and deal with what's going on with you, you know? So I think that's just a tool I use to move through the races. And it also shows my weakness and vulnerability and just humanness, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, Mary. And I and and I personally don't even view it as as a weakness. You know, you talk about the aid station workers maybe seeing you at at a weak point or or you sound like you, you know, and and I'm not I'm not speaking for you whatsoever, but you sound like you, you may have you're not proud of that moment, but, but I don't think that it's really weakness. I really think it's just how your mind ticks and you figured out how, what you need to do to move forward in these moments. So it's, it's really a form of strength when you, when you say, okay, I know this is what I need to do. I'm now, I'm going to have the courage to, uh, to speak this out loud because I know I need to get it outside of me so I can carry on. Um, so I, you know, I, I think you could very easily flip that in your own mind to no longer calling it weakness, but saying, Hey, this is my strength. I know myself this well. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that's an amazing thing. And I want to ask you too, Mary, what is your, when you have these moments, what is, uh, for instance, the race we just discussed, what was your, 
crew member's response to your statement that you didn't want to go back out? Oh, I don't know what she said, actually, but I know she just hugged me and she's like, it's all right. Um, let's just get out of here. You know, like <laughs> something like that. Um, she was very sweet and sensitive. And like I picked her because she's a really tough gal. And um, but she was really sensitive to me at the time. But I probably could have used her to be a little bit harsher to me, too. Not as sensitive because I really respond well to the like, let's get moving, girl. Like, come on, you know, um, but you know, I think she just really encouraged me to keep going. And I had said, the only reason I'm finishing this and I was just being like mad, like is because I want my kids to see me finish, you know? And, um, they had never got to come across a finish line with me. And this was my 10th one. So, um, it kind of reminds me of something one of my friends, uh, said to me when I chose to DNF, uh, cruel jewel this year. Um, and my kids and family were all there and I, I didn't want to suffer in the woods for 48 hours, you know? Um, and a friend of mine said, you know, sometimes w- we do these races to teach our kids to never give up. Um, and then other times we teach, we do these things and we teach our kids that there's nothing more important than them, you know? And I was like, that's good because like I had done cruel jewel the year before and I just like mentally was just not in it. And I didn't, yeah. So we don't need to go into that yet. But um, I think her just reminding me, get out of the tent, like, it's okay. And all these things that I've learned over the years doing this with life, but also ultra running and sobriety is just like, what's happening now is not permanent. Um, conditions always change. My pain and mental torture right now will go away as soon as I get out of the tent, right? It's raining now, it's not gonna be raining later. My knee hurts now, nothing's gonna hurt later, you know? It's just, you can't trust your mind at that point. You just have to take the actions, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, Mary. And and that's something that that I use in my own running. And I we have a little saying that um, I guess was born out of a training run that I did with Jesse Itzler and a guy named Mark Brown. Um, we we just we kept telling each other exactly what you just said, but the phrase we use is it doesn't matter. Because that's just like what you said, nothing is permanent. So if it's cold and it's raining, well, eventually when you finish this race, you're going to be back in your warm bed and you're going to be nice and cozy and dry. Um, if, If you have blisters on your feet, they're going to heal. None of this is permanent. So does it really matter? Uh, in in the long term or in the the big scheme of things that they these minor discomforts truly don't matter. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds like you you you're on the same uh, you're on the same page with that, I guess mantra you would call it. You get this stuff out of your head, and you get back out, get out of the chair, and and you get back out on the course, and like what are you doing from that point forward? Are you I mean, do you feel immediate relief when you when you kind of express that uh, express those emotions, which, again, is another beautiful thing I love about ultra running is it breaks down all these barriers. And we Mm -hmm. can even even me, uh, I can cry out on the the course and, and feel totally comfortable with it. I think it's a wonderful thing. But, yeah, from that point, when you get back out of the tent or out of the chair, uh, what what's what happens then? So it's not super glorious right away. I know that um, I had a pacer this time, but I've had other races where I I haven't had a pacer or anybody with me and I've been alone like the whole time. Um, And so same thing happened, whether I'm with somebody or not, it's just, 
um, I tend to kind of go through like my shuffle and run, but then I, I kind of continue with my breakdown for another, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Like, and that's kind of just crying and like, I don't want to say whimpering because it's not whimpering because it's just like trudging through, but also like the voice of just like, oh, like, um, but getting out some of that, just all of that, just that big ball of mess in, in a verbal way, in an expressive way. And then eventually that does go away. Um, you know, so like it, it doesn't last as long. I know when I, I was thinking, cause, uh, like four years ago, I did cloud splitter, um, hundred and that was like my second hundred ever. And I was alone through that whole race. And I remember, um, and there wasn't very many participants. So like you literally did not see people except for at the aid station or like rarely. And I remember like on my way back and there was like 50 K left and we're going down the mountain at this point, it'd been raining, everything's muddy. And I'm just like, you know, I just had to scream at the top of my lungs or yell some profanity or just, just voice something, um, just to like get it out. But it's also very liberating. There's nobody in the woods. Nobody can hear me, you know? Um, so there's something very freeing about that. Um, and then I think too, you kind of just other things always pop into your head or, or something, um, things that can turn that around really quickly is, a certain person or a lot of times like you come across another runner that's struggling more than you and you want to help them so it gives you this boost of energy just to like because you're not thinking about yourself you know um when I did the Mohican trail race this year I I felt like I was suffering a lot because I'm just like I my training hasn't been great because I don't have a lot of time to train so I use like a race to train for a race to train for a race and um, it started downpouring, like torrential downpouring in the middle of the night, like hard. And I was like, this is great. Like it was my best time because I wasn't thinking of myself, that self-centered, just thinking of just nasty, you know, when it was raining, then all I had to do is think about getting to the next spot. Cause I'm like, this is a bad, these are bad conditions. Like I don't have time to think about my suffering. You know what I'm saying? Just like if you're helping another runner, you're not thinking about your own self-centered stuff. You know? Yep. 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 No. And I use the same tactic and I try to, I try to teach that too out on, out on the race course or in life in general. So a lot of times if I, myself, if I'm in a bad place and a bad, what I tell them is, Hey, get outside of your own head. And for me, that can be something as simple as turning my headlamp off if it's dark and looking at the stars um yeah yeah something as simple as that and it gets you outside of that little bitty space inside of your head and and lets you see the magnitude of the beauty that's around you and how small you and your little your little situation really is in comparison with everything else in the world we're totally in sync there because um you know when i was thinking of this podcast and your uh your theme of three of seven um one of the pieces that had to do with um, the spirit, you know, and I had kind of just reflected part of the reason I love running so much is like, that's where I feel free. And it's just, a lot of it is the sky, you know, it's, it's spaceless, timeless, endless. And like, I can breathe and I don't feel so confined with all that just craziness in my head. And that's where you really can find peace, you know, just so naturally and so easy. So I just 
we're totally in sync there. Yeah, yeah, and we and we actually we were designed to live under that sky, but we've chosen to live in these houses and work in these buildings and live in cities where we can't see the stars even when we are under the night sky. So I think we've lost a a huge connection to that just by way of the lifestyle that we live now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you're out on on the trail at night, especially in some of these places where these races lead us, you get that connection back for sure. Well, that's awesome, Mary. I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about the 200 mile distance. And this is a selfish question because sure. <laughs> I, I've been actually kicking around the idea of doing a 200 miler. Um, at some point in the near future, I, I just kind of want to know how is it in comparison to, you know, the hundred mile distance and I, I mean, yeah, what, what's it all about? Oh, there is so much to talk about with those. Um, I've done two, like, and, and I guess like I did Tahoe. Um, I didn't have any plans for pacers. I had gone out there with two friends from here. I coursed, um, a lieutenant colonel I worked with to come and do it with me. And he did it with me and he brought pacers and they ended up pacing me because he got with a group of guys. Um, but like, it just breaks you down. And so you just go through that, like that kind of transformation of just being at like that wits end. But then there's something in your mind that knows that you're not done. So you don't quit, right? Like you reach that hundred mile point. Like I was so broken after like Moab the first day, like I, I felt great. I don't know. Um, three quarters of the way through the first hundred. And then that night I didn't sleep. I just kept going to the next spot. But you're, you're doesn't quit yet because it knows it has more work to do, which is really fascinating and interesting. Um, and I think even with like just all that pain. So like, I guess that it's the breakdown, but it's just over and over again. And you just go through such an amazing transformation and vision of yourself in so many different ways that like, I find it to be really beautiful. And then the connection with the other people on the trail, I think just makes it more um, just raw and beautiful and vulnerable and just like, I don't know. So like, that's a piece that I find really fascinating. So again, you see your strength, you realize how much these are mental and um, it is such a mental game. I mean, physically, like I'm, I don't train a whole lot. I got two small children. So like I do a lot of strength training and not a ton of running. I try to do like specific stuff, um, back to backs when I need to, but, um, you know, like I really rely on my strength to get me through, but it's so mental more than anything. And I just think when you're out there and with the two hundreds, you're just, you bond, like, you know, you bond with people in a hundred, but you bond with people in such a different way in a 200, like, so much so that like, um, I went back and volunteered at Moab a month later after doing Tahoe. Cause I just wanted to one, get back, but two, just be a part of it, that culture, you know, that, that, that scene that Candace has created. And, um, and I think too, like, you know, you just end up speaking so vulnerably with people when you're on the trail. Like, I think that's just a beautiful thing. You know, there was a guy that paced me for, I don't know how many miles. And I, I remember just like, like this guy, like he probably thinks I'm the craziest person in the world. He just trotted along with me and he was with me the whole time. And, um, I made him like, like 
went to sleep, like sat by this tree in the rain. It stopped raining, but like put stuff down and it could have been an hour, but it was probably 10 minutes. And he just like sat there next to me. And it was just like, these people just take care of you. Um, Somebody once said like, you know, ultra running is really about being a good problem solver. And I totally believe that. So um, because you have to plan for like, especially in the desert, like really warm and really cold. And then how do you plan your drop bags? Like it's, it's kind of interesting, fascinating, exciting, and terrifying at the same time. So, um, and then to me, like the 200 mile courses are beautiful that I've done that Candace, um, the destination trail. Uh, and so I think like, to me, when I envisioned like wanting to be a runner and specifically doing long distance, like that's, that's what I envisioned was like just traveling on foot and seeing amazing places that you want to be able to see otherwise. It's almost freeing in some ways when mm-hmm. you when you come to the realization that you can cover a hundred miles on foot. And I can only imagine how much more freeing it would be when you come to the realization that you can cover 240 miles on foot because mm-hmm. that's just amazing. So yeah, so and that's also interesting you talking about you you go through that. Uh, it sounds like you go through a lot more highs and lows on a 200 mile course. You know, a hundred mile race, it's usually like you have, you, you, you start off feeling fine. You go through one big kind of low moment. And then by the time you're back, you know, you've dug your way back out of that low spot. You're so close to the finish line. You're good mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, uh, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in doing one, and I'll definitely be talking to you more about that distance when I uh, find the courage to sign up. There's no no courage needed. Like <laughs> you probably could go out and do one right now. Like the pace is slower um, if you want because it, it's a little bit more um, like forgiving in that way. Like I mean, I don't remember what the overall pace could be, but that's why I just like I wanted to do it so bad. I just signed up, and I live in Indiana. Okay. And so there's no altitude. It's flat here besides some rolling hills. And here I am going to go do Tahoe, you know, and um, I guess like, do I need to be a great runner to do it? No, you don't run. Like, honestly, you don't run a whole lot. So like your strength training and your climbing and your mental um, strength, um, your mental endurance, like really matter more than anything in your ability to solve problems. So I just went and did it. (laughs) <laughs> I love that style. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears here just a little bit. Something you included in your bio that you sent over, and I didn't know this about you, but um, you said you wanted to, and you actually joined the army um, when you were 29 years old, and you were medically disqualified. And the part that really interested me is you said that you believe that that circumstance impacted you in terms of how you push limits in ultra running. And I can really relate to that scenario or or that situation that you went through, because I, I, I don't know if you know, but when I joined the Navy for the first time, I was also medically disqualified. Um, and I remember how that felt because when you decide you want to go join the army or the Navy or any sort of military branch, it's like your whole mind, your whole existence is wrapped around that going, going and joining the Navy or for me, joining the Navy 
it's like everything revol- had to revolve around that because it's such a big lifestyle change. And then when you have it taken from you, it, it impacts you in a big way. But mm-hmm. when you talked about how that's affected you in terms of you pushing limits with ultra running, what do you what do you mean by that? Do you did did ultra running take the place of kind of that that dream you had to to serve your country or what do you mean? Okay, so it's still kind of a sensitive subject for me because I I guess like I still struggle with it, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to join the military when I was younger. Like after I was in college, some I had a significant other uh, that was in the Marine Corps and. Um, you know, I went to college and so like I wanted to then, but I also was just like, I was in college, I was part, I was drinking all the time. And like, I ended up like, um, having a couple DUIs when I was 19 and 20. And then I stopped drinking when I was 20. But then like, you know, I always knew I was like, I have a, an essence of toughness to me. I don't always have the greatest confidence, but I know I have a level of toughness. And, you know, I always thought that would, that would be very fitting for me to do, but I could never get it. Because recruiters are like, oh, you have these DUIs now, you can't. And um, through my professional career, I ended up working with the Army National Guard and doing behavioral health. And, um, you know, it had been seven or eight years at that time. And uh, they were like, you can join. Like, you just need a waiver. And so I had, I was like, that is amazing. Like, to be able to be a leader and give back and, um, you know, working around these people that I just, like, respect so much. Like, um, and then, you know, the, the person had passed away, um, that I was with when I was younger, you know, it was always just this part of me that I really wish that I, you know, like could be a part of. Right. And I guess it's still as humans, I think we want to be a part of something bigger and give back and, and pride. And, um, and I was like, this is great. And so like the fact that I had that open door, it's like, awesome. And, um, within all of that, and I can't go into certain piece, there was a part before that, like, um, just some life stuff that had happened before I actually could sign the papers that delayed me signing the papers. That, um, is a really hard thing for me too. Um, so then like I was doing like running and triathlons, just shorter distance stuff that I was way faster back then. But, um, so I joined and then I went to, um, basic training cause I wanted to be mental health. I wanted to do behavioral health and, you know, work with soldiers. Uh, but I couldn't because I don't have the right license. Um, so anyways, I had to still go through basic training and then officer candidate school, which most, uh, medical people, they don't have to go through basic. Uh, they just have to do some like, uh, bullet class for their training, but I had to do the long way. And so I went through basic training and, you know, I'm one of the older people. So I felt like, it was very fitting. Like it's real. it was really easy for me. Right. Um, you know, I don't like people waking me up really early screaming in my face, but like, um, I really, um, I did enjoy basic training. I, I was telling uh, my sig- Chris, my husband, uh, we raked a lot of leaves, uh, because there was just a lot of downtime. But anyways, three months later, um, I had about a month off before I went to officer candidate school, officer candidate school in the army. I did, I chose to do the eight week one. Cause I'm like, I'm 29. I need to get the guard one that was like two years, one week and a month. You could do like a longer one. So I chose this like eight week one. And I'm like, physically, I'm like, I'm in good shape, right? I know how to handle this stuff. And I think, um, so I went and like, I had been doing yoga then. So like, I felt pretty mentally strong too, to like deal with like people screaming in your face. Cause I knew it was just a lot more intense. And 
from somebody that didn't have any enlisted background, like, you know, it was all very fresh. Um, so anyways, like it was physically like I did fine. Um, uh, intelligence wise, I did fine, but then I kept having some like medical stuff come up that I went to medical with like about halfway through that, you know, it was like, here, try some of this and we'll see. And, um, you know, and then after a second time, like, he's like, you really need to have more testing done. And, um, and I ended up leaving at like six weeks, like five to six weeks out of the eight, um, through the course, which felt like, which, um, partly was my decision, but was encouraged by them. I guess if I really wanted to fight it, I could, so I could come back, get some testing and then figure out what direction to go. And then it's like, Oh, you got this um, condition. You could get a waiver for it, but then you have to take these medications for this. And, and I tried the medications. They made me feel like a little nutty. And, um, but I just, uh, you know, and then looking at the time in my life and thinking about like, it's like, I would have had to start from scratch and just, it was really long with the way I'd have to get back into officer candidate school with the whole medical time frame that, um, you know, they processed me out medically. Um, and it was really defeating because I felt one coming home early from officer candidate school, I felt very ashamed, you know, like I work with these people, um, full-timers in the guard and like, I couldn't, I couldn't, like I'm back early, whatever the reason, they don't need to know the reason, but I felt very weak and I felt very ashamed. And that was a dark time in my life because there's not a lot of things like if I really set out to do something, most of the time I can complete it, you know, um, cause I work hard and try and, and this is something that I didn't. And that was like, it still kind of chokes me up a little bit. Um, because like it, I felt like weak and I felt very ashamed. Like I wasn't chronically just not worthy and not good enough. And it's like, I didn't even want to show my face right away, you know, back at work and had a really hard time with that. And then I got processed out and that took a long time. If you've ever dealt with anybody being med boarded, med board takes a long time. It's very, um, it, it tests you. Um, yeah, I just then, went through one. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's rough. And I work with these people, you know, so like I work with the people that are going through these, uh, med boards as well, um, at the time. And so I think like running was my escape one to, um, keep pushing myself. And it was just an avenue for me to kind of like try to show myself that like, I'm strong. Um, I'm not weak, like that. I, I still have some toughness and like, it was also just my way to get like connection, right? Like with my higher power, when I would be able to just go out and run and still feel like I have like strength, I guess. I know that's just a, the word strength, but I think a lot of it's, that's what it was. And I, it's like, I keep taking the actions to convince myself mentally that I was enough, you know? And, um, that's when I did get into ultra running because there was a part of me that felt like I just really wasn't good enough to match up with my peers, um, to make it through that, you know, and I'm the only one judging myself so harshly. Nobody else is. And I think I still have stuff to work on with how I view that situation and change the narrative a little bit. But I think that some of that flows into my ultra running of pushing limits and, and continuing to see how I, you naturally always break down in an ultra and in life, but like, you can't just quit, you know, um, you have to keep moving. You have to keep going. You know, there's no finish line in life. There isn't a race, but in life there's not. And 
you know, I think ultra running teaches us how to do life better. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And the same for me, ultra running, maybe it's my answer to not dying in the chair. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, you know, you, you won't, you, you know, I can't be a seal anymore and, and this and that, but I, I'm going to go out here and still achieve and, and do really hard stuff. So it's a, that's a beautiful thing about our sport. Well, let me comment. Let me comment on Yeah, that. go ahead. Um, you know, you talking about, I mean, you and one of the most elite, like, uh, professional military careers. Right. And then, um, you know, having to be uh, med boarded out and then you having to go through that process, like you go from a place where you have so much like, and I'm, I'm visioning you, right. You have so much pride in what you do and, and, and your career and so much of your identity is wrapped up in that. Um, and then like, as you go through med board and that takes a long time, like you're not with your buddies, um, you're kind of, isolated and then it's how people view you how you view yourself and everybody wants to have a sense of purpose and meaning and belonging in their life and so like especially active duty people um you know you take that away when they go through that med board and a lot of leaders aren't really good at caring for their people as they go through that transition um and they don't realize how how much somebody's like the existential aspect of who am i as a man as a person and, and it's such a vulnerable time, you know, because I work with a lot of these people, but I also had to experience that on a very like minor, minor scale for me, but also with life. Like, I, I think for you too, like that's mentioning how ultra running might have fit into that. It kind of gives you an identity and something to be proud of outside of a professional realm, you know? It's a big thing for me is diversifying your identity. And I think if I could give one piece of advice to someone that's transitioning from active duty to civilian life, whether it's a med board or whether they just decide that they're, 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 it's time for them to leave the military, you've got to intentionally do something to diversify your identity. Because I've got so many friends that have been medically retired from the SEAL teams or have decided to get out. And um, and it can be really bad because their entire identity is wrapped around that singular mm-hmm. that singular thing. And it, it leads to even it, even to suicide. I mean, I've lost two of my closest friends uh, from the SEAL teams to suicide. And um, yeah, it's it's just so important. And I hope people realize that and I hope people are intentional about it, you know, about a year ahead, about a year before you, you know, you're getting out. Mm -hmm. It's time to start looking, looking for something new that you can be passionate about, um, that you can, that you can identify with. So, all right, Mary. So I got to ask you a question. Why do you think there are so many people in recovery running ultras? And I ask you this because obviously I read your bio and um my wife and i i was i was telling my wife about you earlier and my wife's also in recovery she runs ultras um i just did an interview with uh scott on a podcast called 10 junk miles um Mm -hmm. yes you know yesterday and scott's in recovery and it's like it's it's just there's such a large group of people uh in our community that are that that share that common ground so 
What's your opinion on that? I think one, like when you're working a recovery program, like, you know, when I got sober, I was 20, right? I was going to college and it's a really tough time to get sober because hell, I wasn't even 21, but like I needed a system for integrating healthy practices into my life. Cause like, not that I wasn't healthy, but just like balance. Right. And, um, so I got involved with 12 step groups, um, with Alcoholics Anonymous and it was the place where my relationship with God strengthened, um, it grew exponentially and, you know, through the 12 steps, the 12 steps basically is, a, is a ladder to God and a relationship, um, with God and, and of right living. Right. Um, and when you sit in a meeting, a 12 step meeting, and you get to the place where you're really looking at yourself and you're looking at your own stuff, your own garbage, your own darkness. Right. And then the people around you bring bring light. They bring love. They bring they bring the, the tools. Um, they share their experience, strength and hope. Um, you grow. You grow through the breakdown um, because recovery isn't easy because you have to be willing to look at yourself and be honest. And um, but at the same time, when you're honest, if you're in a good, healthy meeting, you're going to be surrounded by people that will love you regardless and show you the way as you expose your your stuff, your shame, your all that just junk. Right. That stands in the way and clouds our relationship to be effective in, in God's use. Right. Um, and I think with that, the rawness of what like you experience in a 12 step meeting, um, there's. There's very little that people, if you've never been to one, can really compare and understand what it's like to sit in a 12-step meeting. Because when people can share so openly and honestly about themselves, about their life, about what they're struggling with, just with no filters, and you can share that in a setting without judgment, um, nobody's responding to you in a negative way, other people just go ahead and say, you know what? I've experienced something like this. So they share their experience, strength and hope. So they're not necessarily talking at you. Like it's very healing and liberating. Just that level of raw emotional honesty is so enriching, liberating. And so transition that to, um, you know, running, right? Like I was really out of whack with running. And um, when I first started running, I was like really ate up, right? Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, like I struggled. It's kind of triggered um, an old behavior of bulimia with me. And so like I would get injured. I wouldn't, I'd eat a ton and like I just had no balance. It took me a few years to get to where I could run and not be ate up. And, um, and I think when I started one connecting with runners, like there's a rawness on the trail, um, not as much in road running, but when you find the right people, you just are able to connect with them in such a such a way, right? But I think when you move to that level of ultra running and you take risks and you're seeking like experience, right? Like I want to live my life where I look back and say like I did these things and I I I lived, right? Um, and I think when you get into ultra running, like you're around some like-minded people in that way that also want to grow um, and, and experience life. But at the same time, you connect with people in a manner we don't get to have professionally, right? Like you don't have to have all the common courtesies and everything. You can blow your nose, you can be disgusting on the trail, but you can cry, you can be um, you can experience joy, but you connect with people so rawly, you know, it's amazing the conversations you have on the trail where people just openly will talk about, you know, 
the worst day of their life or those worst moments or those things that they are like probably had a really hard time struggling with um, feeling ashamed, but have moved through it without even knowing them. You know, my pacer um, that was with me a couple weeks ago, like I was like, man, we are the same. Like she was sharing some stuff about her life and I'm like, man, we are like one in the same. We're, it's an equalizer. And for me, I mean, that's my take is, you know, that's my ability to really connect with people soul to soul. Um, run, ultra running really does that because like we talked about with 100 and 200, it breaks you. You have to get rid of all that ego BS and you connect with people on what's real and what's we're human, right? And I think you can probably relate because everything militarily, you don't get to be that way all the time. You have to work really hard not to be that way. Um, and I think the trail is very leveling because it it takes the ego out of it for the for for most people, right? Especially like non-elites, but even elites, you know. Um, I'm definitely like a back of the packer, mid packer. So I think it's just a beautiful thing to be able to connect. And I think that's why, like after I did Tahoe. Um, I had to go back to Moab because I just really, I, I craved that level of deep vulnerability and connection with people, um, that I had there that, you know, I can get in some meetings, but it was just like immersed in it. And I think too, that's the mental emotional side, but physically, like it's a place where I can test and improve and, and do some inventory. What do I need to do and change? And I think most people, they want to improve themselves, and so like for me, like physically, I know I can do stuff physically. I don't have a lot of time to run and I don't normally care about like how well I do in a race. Like I'm not trying to to win. Right. I just want to finish. But like it's also an opportunity for me to see, can I do better and how can I do better? Let me look back and see, you know, what can I add in or do differently this time? And and so it's a constant like personal self-reflection, but then also I think the level of just connecting with other people and that human element that I think naturally as humans, we crave that. And unless you know yourself and you've experienced your own darkness that way, like you're uncomfortable with that. But people in recovery are used to that. And I think that's why we are more in tune with the race, the run, the people, the whole experience. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it makes total sense, Mary. And do you think that um, these type of endurance sports would be a good prescription for anyone that that might be, uh, in a sense, in recovery, not just from drugs or alcohol, but say from the loss of a loved one or from from something that that they may have had to deal with or are dealing with? Um, do you see it as something that can help uh, people outside of just that, you know, um, drug and alcohol recovery status? Oh, absolutely. You know, like, uh, you know, listening to you on a couple podcasts, just talking about, I don't remember what race it was, but it was just like, you said every loop you would, you would think of one of your brothers, you know, and, yeah. and honor them each lap. And then when you had your last, uh, the run you did with Jesse and Mark or the other gentleman yeah. that, you just talked to gratitude, you know, like it's kind of like a mini life experience that um, no matter what you're going through, it brings people together like heart to heart, human to human. And when we're going through pain and grief and, and turmoil, like that's what we need the most, right? Is we need the connection with other people because it's within people is where God comes in, um, you know, God with skin on, right? And most people, when they're depressed, they don't want to be around people. 
Um, and I guess it's that tool for life. Like it, like races and ultras teach you things about how to do life. Like I'm somebody that like, Oh, this bad thing's happening. This is, and then I catastrophize it. And suddenly we're going to end up homeless, bankrupt and all this other stuff. Right. Where it's like, you know, I had a friend that said something to me, like, you can't judge a race at mile 40 on the rest of the, the hundred mile race. Like don't throw in the towel yet, you know, just get to the next aid station or, you know, get to the next pole or uh, like bone pole or, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, duh, like ultras teach you things for life. And like, um, as a therapist, you know, I did some stuff for suicide prevention a few years ago and I was using like things I'd learned in ultra running where it's like, you know, when people are suicidal, they're hopeless and they feel like a burden and like things aren't going to change. And one of the things you learn with ultra running is that you can't make a judgment based on what's going on right now because conditions always change, right? Like that blister like hurts now, but it'll pop later and then you'll feel way better or something else will hurt or it's cold, but it gets warmer. It's raining. It's going to stop. And it's like the conditions always change. So if you make a, if you make a permanent decision about something early on, then you give up, you know, that's DNF, that's failure or in life, like, you know, it can have catastrophic effects. And so I think it, it's really like a way to test life out in a safe way too. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it is, uh, a huge. So uh, the way I can relate to this is I've started doing some public speaking for corporations or men's groups or whatever it may be. And, you know, I have if I have a corporation or a company approach me with a problem um, that they're having within their team, I'll go out and I'll go for a run and I'll start digging through my files of lessons learned. And, mm -hmm. and and a lot of the lessons and the stories that I can portray to a team in the corporate world were learned through ultra running. And and I think I, I wonder a lot of times when I go and speak if people aren't expecting to hear all these war stories and all these stories from the SEAL teams and military service. And yes, those stories are there. And there's there's hundreds and hundreds of lessons learned within that time. But there were there are so many new lessons that have been learned out on the trail uh, in, in this new new part of my life that are so valuable. So I couldn't agree with you anymore that the lessons we learn during these events transfer into real life. Well, like you said, because each each race is a new experience, even if you've done that course before, it's a new experience. And so what worked maybe last time may not work this time or it's there's different conditions. And so, like, you have to adapt and you have to figure it out. And, and so it's a new experience, but yet it's a safe experience, you know, um, yeah. to be able to test that stuff out. That's that's interesting. I I like that. I yep. really am fascinated by the whole organizational psychology stuff, That's having awesome. worked in the military the last 10 years. So. <laughs> well, um, I want to ask you, Mary, this and this question is kind of specific to the the mission of three of seven. Mm -hmm. We talk we talk a lot about body, soul and spirit. 
that's that's what the three and three of seven represents those those three aspects of our humanity. Mm-hmm. So you as a healthcare provider, you're a professional, and I wanted to get your opinion or or your wisdom on the interconnection between the body, soul, and spirit. Um, how they balance each other out. How are how are how do you view them as as being as being interconnected? Well. I'll tell you the truth. So like um, you sent me just a little snippet of um, stuff before the before the call. And so I started just kind of journaling a little bit about like, how do I see these three pieces in my life? Right. And um, it was kind of hard for me to separate them out. Like this is what I do for this and this and this, because to me, they they are completely interwoven together. But, um, you know, and also working working with people for the last um, I don't know, since 2006, um, you have, it's a holistic thing, right? Um, I'm used to working with people that like are really good at taking care of themselves physically, but neglect their, their, um, you know, I'd say emotionality, but the mental emotional piece, right? For you, that's the uh, soul part, right? Like, like just not being fully in tune with that. And like, it goes back to, you can be super healthy, but if you're not, um, if you're not looking at investigating and working with the other parts, like you are completely off balance because it's, it's that idea of what's repressed gets expressed. Right. And so it's like, if I'm really working hard to, um, not acknowledge some of my own anger and hatred or, um, issues inside of me, and I'm being just hypothetical here, like, the more I have that, that I'm unwilling to see, the more that's going to seep out into other areas of my life. And a metaphor I always use when working with people is um, the game of whack-a-mole, right? Um, In an arcade or whatever, right? It's like you are able to like hit one of those things down, but then you got another one that's always coming up and then coming up and then coming up, right? And so it's like you're constantly working to push one down if you're only focusing on one of those dimensions. And, um, that's why, like, when people are so scared to come to therapy, I'm like, it's so freeing because you're going to be releasing so much, you know. Um, so I, I know for me, like, they all intertwine. And sometimes maybe you're you're better at focusing on one than another. And I think that's why, like, I need routine and structure, but I'm not good at creating it myself. And so, like, sometimes I might focus more on my emotional needs or my um like my spiritual needs, right? Or um, those more soulful needs of, of just connecting with a higher power. But like, you know, for me, like connecting with, you know, that spiritual side of me, there's parts where I need to do individually, but also it's also in connection with other people, you know, God with skin on. And um, and then I, I accomplish that physically, right? Like sometimes it's in the quiet of reading a book or just quiet time with myself, reflecting, writing, or it's out in conversation with people or randomly, what is that um, experience I had going to the grocery store and talking to that, that person in the aisle today? Um, but I think it's kind of a tough question, but like they're all intertwined to me. So I'm not sure if I'm answering it. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. You answered, you answered it perfectly. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to, to get from you. Cause 
we, I, I personally, I use that that body, soul, and spirit um, as a. I almost use it as a diagnostic. And I like the way you kind of broke that down, and and kind of your evaluation of yourself on what's going on with me. What can I? Um, where do I need to focus my attention? Right? Because it's easy to it's easy to go through the motions with certain things and then feel like, okay, like check the box, like I'm doing this. So there's a level of like safety, but sometimes false safety in that. And so like, I'm not good at this stuff either. Like the balance, it's like, you know, I could probably do it a lot better in lots of different ways. But I think with the whole soul piece you're talking about, like um, the first thing that came to mind is really using the world outside of you and this is what I try to do. Okay. So I'm just speaking Mary language, not professional or anything, but, you know, using the world as a mirror of like, what's going on with me? Because essentially everything that we, in my idea, um, not my own idea, but this is how I, my lens is everything that's happening that I'm seeing that I'm experiencing mentally and emotionally, my judgments, like, that's all originating in me. It's really just a reflection of myself um, outward, right? Like it's showing me the world and this this uh, interaction here is showing me stuff about me that sometimes like, well, if I'm really agitated and irritated or something about this interaction with this person really rubbed me the wrong way. And like, I'm just really, I can't let it go. Like that inventory, I need to look at myself because it's really never about the other person. It's about me. And that's really like just being willing to like look at the darker parts of ourselves and our judgments, um, because really like what I'm judging of someone else, I'm judging of myself, because most of the time you find that I have found that what I might be judgmental, have a really strong reaction in somebody else. Like I've had my own judgments. I have Maybe I haven't taken that action, but yet I've still thought it. So what's really the difference, right? Like we are human, you know, like I have this belief that like God's within the essence of every man, woman and child. And so like that's where like the real truth is, not all the garbage and ego that we see on the outside. And so like when stuff goes on in the world, it's really just a reflection of me, my thoughts and emotions, which ties into my spirit, right? My That divine part of me that. I have to really look at like I need to bring more love to those places. I need to be more in tune and um, maybe more real about some things. And I think it's just a continual growth um, because you never like you never arrive. Right. Like nobody cares. Work harder or like it doesn't matter. Like what you did yesterday. Like that's good. Um, there's muscle memory. But like there's always work to do. And what's going on today where I can improve. And to me, like pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. And sometimes looking at those harder parts of ourselves, we don't want to acknowledge. And a lot of times that comes through our judgments of others. Like, how am I judging myself? How am I really alike with this person, you know, um, in some capacity, because within that, we find our connection to forgiveness and, and love and that brotherhood, you know, or sisterhood. And, um, so I don't know. That's kind of the idea of the the uh, in, personal inventory of of looking within, you know. Yeah, and what a what a powerful concept. And I've never heard that in anyone put it that way of of looking through a lens of the things. And, and correct me if I say this wrong, but the things that are happening around you that you are seeing are a lot of times a byproduct of your mind, will, and emotions. 
Um, mm-hmm. I have never thought about it that way. That is such a powerful way to to view the world. That's such a powerful lens to look through because it always brings it back. It all it brings it back to within and, and gives you power. I think it gives you a power and a Absolutely. realization that you can actually change the things outside of yourself by working on the things within yourself. Absolutely. It's projection, right? So like yeah. if I'm not taking care of myself and, and they kind of teach you this in recovery and, and through your inventories and spot check inventories, it's like if there's something going on with me, um, I there if I'm mad at something in the world, there's something going on with me. You know, because we waste a lot of time. We can't change anybody else. We can only change ourselves. And so, like, it really is about me. So when I'm having a bad day, if I'm not taking care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, um, spiritually, like, that's going to come out sideways. That goes with what's repressed gets expressed. Like, that's going to come out sideways. And so maybe I'm, like, super hard on my spouse, my kids, or, like, really irritated or having an issue at work. But, like, it's not really about them. Most of the time I find that if I'm like getting really angry about something, it's something going on with me. There's some part of me I'm not taking care of really well that maybe I need to nurture more, bring more love to, or bring more work to, because it's really not about the anger that I think is somebody else. It's just, it's, it's forcing me to look at something within myself. The question is if I'm willing to look at it. And sometimes that's not easy because we don't see it right away, you know? Yeah, totally. And and I think that 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 applies in a lot of situations that looking through that lens. I think, though, that there are also situations in life that come up that may not they may be spontaneous in a way that they are not being caused by your actions or your mind, will and emotions. And the way I try to look at those things, maybe is I look at those situations as not as like a a bad day or a bad event. I try to look at it just as a test to lead me to the place that I need to be in life. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I've tried to flip that in my mind to and, and that's kind of how I cover down on those on those other scenarios that may not apply to the concept that we just talked about. And well, there's nothing that's answered so easily, but like a lot of times we don't like, you know, grief and pain and loss and, and disease, all that stuff. Like, um, we don't ever know why. Right. And, um, and a lot of times we, we won't know until later, like in hindsight, like, Sometimes we're really upset about certain doors being closed or certain losses we have in our life. But like later we find when the other door opens or a new experience or something came about of that, like just like the seasons, you know, the physical changing of seasons, like for us, we don't really see stuff until in hindsight. And so I think there's just a gentleness that has to happen with that. Mary, that was some solid stuff. Where can people find you and follow you um, and, and follow your future missions with ultra running and, and life in general? If people are interested, I mean, I have Instagram that people can follow. It's Mary Ellen AAA, Mary Elena, and that's Instagram. So um, I'm on Facebook. That's really about it. Uh, I don't really do a lot of social media at that, but 
you know, I, I thank you so much for even being willing to talk to me. I felt really intimidated. Like, what do I have to share with, with this guy that's done like all these amazing things? So I'm really, really humbled. And hopefully um, I can work on getting you out to where I work to share some of your messaging, because I think you're really powerful. You have so much to offer and give. And I, I think what you're doing right now with your podcast and um, the other uh, professional adventures you're getting into is just really outstanding. So. Well, thank you, Mary. Yeah. And, and definitely never, never doubt how powerful you are. You, you came up with some concepts and and some thoughts here on this episode that um, I've, I mean, you've changed my way of, of looking at certain situations. So uh, you, you have so much to offer and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chad.